The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, before we start uh, diving in and studying God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. That the eyes of, as our text says, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we may know the hope to which we have been called. What is the glorious inheritance in the saints? And the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. That we may know, truly know you, Lord. So pray, Father, that you would give us hearts that are expectant, expecting to hear you speak to us this morning. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work. We pray all this for Christ's sake and for our good. And in his name, amen. Amen. Well, during the first few weeks through our study of Ephesians, we we have had the great privilege of studying the spiritual blessings that are made available to us in Christ through the gospel. Big picture, just a little recap, big picture. We have seen how God the Father has elected us unto redemption in his sovereign love. How God the Son has accomplished the work of redemption through his death on the cross. And how God the Spirit has applied the work of redemption to us through his indwelling presence within us. But this morning... We, we're going to learn how we are to lay hold of these spiritual blessings from God. They're available to us in Christ, but how do we lay hold of them? This morning, we're going to see and we're going to learn how it is through prayer that we obtain and experience the great benefits of the gospel for the Christian life. And so Paul begins this epistle with one long sentence over 200 words in one sentence, verses 3 through 14. And he ends chapter 1 with another long sentence. You see periods and commas here in our English translation, but in the Greek, it's just all one long sentence from 15 through 23. And it, again, it's as if the Apostle Paul, he can't contain the joy and the reality of what is available to us. In Christ. And so now, before Paul begins writing on the topic of prayer, though, he gives us a little preface concerning two key marks of a genuine Christian. And so if you've read a book and and you see that preface, the, the purpose of a preface is to kind of set the stage, as it were, to introduce uh the, the topic at hand. And so how why why would Paul uh use the preface of these two key marks of a genuine Christian? How can we know that someone has been born again and is truly following Christ? Well, look at with me, verse 15. What does Paul say? He says, for this reason, because I have what? Heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, now today there's a lot of talk about that word faith, isn't there? And the most important things in life, a lot of people say, right? What are the most important things in life? Faith, family, freedom, and football, right? You got to have the four F's of life. The most important four F's. In life. But but this word faith, it, it's become a catch-all word that, that just means someone's religious beliefs. What, what do they believe religiously about something? But notice what Paul says here. That we don't have faith in a set of doctrinal statements. 
As Christians, we are to place our faith in a person. Yes, as a Christian, you must believe doctrinal truths. And I hope that through my preaching these past couple months, you've seen how I love the great doctrines of the Bible. But the heart, the essence of Christianity, of the Christian faith, it's not faith in a body of truth, but faith in the person who is the truth. It's, it, we, we don't believe some impersonal truths. We believe truths that are clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the Lord Jesus is one marker of genuine faith, a genuine conversion. But secondly, notice the other marker that Paul writes here. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And so there's this notion going on today that of I love God, I just don't love the church, right? I believe in God, but I don't go to church just because it's full of hypocrites. And, and, and so, you know, it's a funny saying, but, but if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it by your joining of it, right? And so the church is full of hypocrites, right? The church is full of imperfect people, and that's the whole point. We, as imperfect people, we worship a perfect, risen Savior, but by your presence here, right, I'm glad that that's, that that's not the case for you. But hear me. The Bible knows nothing of this sentiment. That I, love the, I love God, I just don't love the church. I love God, I just don't love his people. In fact, the Apostle John goes so far to say that if you claim to know God, yet you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then actually that's a clear indication that you don't truly love God and that you don't truly know God. Two key marks of genuine conversion, Paul tells us here, is that we have faith in the Lord Jesus and that we have love toward all the saints. And so again, why does Paul give this quick preface before he writes on prayer? It seems they seem a bit disconnected, don't they? Well, I think he does so because to convey that only those who have truly repented of their sins and only those who are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation it's only these people who can expect to pray effectually. James 5 verse 16, it says the, power, the prayer of a righteous person, it has great power as it is working. And so listen, the only way that we can expect to live a righteous life in this lifetime is if we have first been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, then the rest of our time will be of little value. To you. And if that's you, I want to encourage you this morning to ask yourself this one question. Maybe you're exploring Christianity, maybe maybe you're playing the religious game, but you know deep down you don't know Christ. I just want to encourage you to ask this one question this morning. What is preventing me from trusting in Jesus? Later after our service, I would love to share with you how you can receive God's free gift of salvation today. How you can be found in Christ and how your prayers can become effective. But, but for those of us who are in Christ this morning, the Apostle Paul, he outlines for us in our text the why, the how, and the what of effective prayer. The why, the how, and the what of effective prayer. So first, the why of prayer. Why should we pray? Many times we know that we should pray, right? But why? why? Why do we do it? Because it's religious duty, because it helps us cope with the challenges of life. Why do we pray? We pray 
Because all the benefits of the gospel that are available to us for the Christian life, they can only be obtained by us through prayer. You'll notice in our text that Paul's prayer in in verses 15 through 23, they're either similar to or identical with the gospel truths that he tells us in verses 3 through 14. In verses 3 through 14, he says, these are now yours in Christ. All of these spiritual blessings are yours in Christ. But then in verses 15 through 23, he says, he, he prays that what is ours in Christ, what is made available to us in Christ would be attained by us. In this lifetime or to put it another way, Paul says, this is all yours in Christ, but you may you must lay hold to what is yours. You must become who you now are in Christ. So notice with me how Paul writes in the passive voice in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me where Paul says he prays that we would have have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, the only way we can be enlightened to know spiritual truth is through the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating and enlivening God's word within us. The the enlightening of our eyes is something that is done to us, not something that we do ourselves. And so again, why do we pray? We pray because any spiritual growth, it's impossible in our own strength. Any spiritual growth that happens must come from the Holy Spirit's work within us. Or as Jesus would put it, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so this is why we pray. We pray for the Spirit to be at work within us and for Him to give us spiritual life and growth. But but then if we know why we should pray, I think it's helpful to ask then, how do we pray? Well, thankfully, again, our text tells us and it gives us that answer. Notice with me verse 17 when Paul says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, he may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And later on in this epistle, which we'll get there uh, soon enough, Paul would command the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter six and us today that we are to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So so how do we pray? Paul tells us we pray in the Spirit. And when we seek to pray in the Holy Spirit, he gives us wisdom. You see that, right? He gives us wisdom and he reveals to us the truth of God in ways that we would not understand otherwise. Indeed, this is one of the primary reasons for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Jesus said that that the Holy Spirit would come and that he would guide us into all the truth. And so while we should avail ourselves of good preachers, of good books, and of good counsel from others, listen, it is the Holy Spirit who should be our greatest teacher when we read God's word. He is the one who guides us into the truth. He is the one who, our text says, enlightens the eyes of our hearts. And so we should pray in the Spirit to be filled by the Spirit. So, but practically, right? What does this look like? What does this look like to pray in the spirit? There are a lot of ideas rolling around in Christendom today of what that means. So before answering that question, I think it's important to say what praying in the spirit is not. First, it does not mean that all of a sudden you begin speaking in some unintelligible language. 
It doesn't mean that, that to pray in the Spirit doesn't mean that you pray with force and passion and eloquence and verbose language. And it doesn't mean that when prayer gets difficult, when you don't know what to pray for or when the words aren't flowing, you just push through in your own strength and power. This is what it means to pray in the flesh, not to pray in the Spirit. Can, can we pray with force, with passion, with eloquence? Yes, we can. But listen, the words that we say in prayer are to be a byproduct of and not the cause of praying in the Spirit. Again, the words we say in prayer are to be the byproduct of and not the cause of praying in the Spirit. So if that's what praying in the Spirit is not, then what is, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? First, it begins with confession. Right? We confess to God our own inability to pray in our own strength. We, we, we're honest with the Lord. We confess our disinterestedness in prayer, our dullness, our dryness, our difficulty in prayer. We confess that we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We, we confess that our prayers will be ineffectual apart from the intervening and enlivening work of the Holy Spirit. We, we confess that we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we need the strength of our spirits awakened, and that we need the desires of, the, of our wills transformed by the Holy Spirit when we pray. Secondly, praying in the Spirit. It means not only do we confess our inability, but that we also take a posture of humility and of total surrender to the Holy Spirit. It means that our spirits are completely yielded to the Spirit of God and that we are sensitive to His presence when we pray. It means that we are unrushed and that we wait upon the Holy Spirit when we pray. We don't set the prayer agenda when we pray. He does. And listen, it's good for us to enter to times of structured prayer. But that structure should always give way to the influence of the Holy Spirit when we pray. And finally, uh, for the sake of time, not for the sake of reasons or how to pray in the Holy Spirit, but for the sake of time, when we pray in the Holy Spirit, it means that we pray with a humble and a holy boldness. Jason Meyer, a pastor in Minneapolis, he, he wrote this. He said, the result of the Spirit's work is that we bow before God as humbled children of God in all of him. We come with an awakened sense of intimacy and all. And then the Spirit also breathes bold life into our prayers. A holy boldness that pleads the promises of God within the presence of God. When we pray in the Spirit, we pray with boldness. But a boldness that requests, not a boldness that demands. Praying in the Spirit, it's not a name it, claim it type of prayer life. Right there, There's a church just south of here that preaches that kind of way, and it's entirely unbiblical. We don't believe in a name it, claim it type of Christianity. Listen, there, there are some times in life when, it, when in God's sovereign will for your life, he may say no. And I was just talking to someone this last week, and they, they said they are grateful for the unanswered prayers uh, that, that God did not answer in their lives. So he, sometimes in his sovereign will for your life, he will say no. Or, or there are other times when in his providence, God may tell you, wait. However, the governing principle from scripture regarding prayer is, is that when we pray, God hears us. 
So we should pray boldly. And that when we pray according to his will, he answers us so that we should pray expectantly. The Bible tells us that persistent prayer, it is prevailing prayer. And so we pray boldly and we pray expectantly. And when we do this, we begin to pray in the spirit. Now, his answer may not be what we initially thought nor desired, but God will answer our prayers. He will always do so in such a way that leads to our greatest good and his highest glory. And so praying in the spirit, it means that we begin with confessing our inability, that we yield our spirits to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And praying in the spirit means that we pray boldly, knowing that the Holy Spirit will usher us to the throne of grace. And that when he does so, our heavenly father, he will meet us there. So we know the why of prayer now, the the how of prayer, but but let's look at what Paul tells us is the what of prayer. What should be the content of our prayer according to this passage? Well, first Paul says that we are to pray that we may know our God. When I was in the sixth grade, I think it was the sixth grade, I was given an assignment to do a, uh, I was given a biographical assignment. I had to write a biography on someone And so at that time, I was an avid OU football fan. I still am today, but maybe it's a bit matured and tempered. Um, But at that time, OU football, it was life. And so I did my project on one of my favorite heroes at the time. And you might know this name, Adrian Peterson. Adrian Peterson, he was a prolific and a a once-in-a-generation type of running back. I can still tell you that his, during his freshman year, he rushed for 1,925 yards, and he was runner-up to the Heisman uh, his freshman year. But, but, but while I did this project, I, I learned and I wrote a lot about Adrian Peterson. But while I knew a lot of facts about him, I had never actually met him. I didn't actually know him. Well, fast forward one year later to my seventh grade year, and, and I was given a similar assignment in English class. And I was to write about my greatest hero in life. Well, this time, I chose someone that I actually knew and who at that time had recently passed away. And that was my grandpa. In this paper, I wrote about the various qualities that my grandpa exhibited. His work ethic, his ingenuity, his humor, and his love for me. I wrote about why he was the Superman of my life. And in this paper, I shared about the different experiences that he and I had together before his passing. You see... I was able to write that first biography assignment on Adrian Peterson because I researched and I learned a lot of facts about his life and football career. I wrote that paper with a factual knowledge about Adrian Peterson. But that second paper I wrote on my grandpa, it wasn't just filled with facts about his life, though it was factually accurate. No, the content of that paper, it centered upon a personal, a relational a vibrant and an experiential knowledge that I had of my grandpa. Do you see? There's a difference between knowing about someone and actually truly knowing someone. Listen, we can study God's word. We can listen to good preachers. We can read those good books. We can grow in knowledge about God by our own doing. But the only way we can come to a true knowledge of God is by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to reveal to us the one true living God. Now, this doesn't mean we don't read good books and and we don't study theology. 
we do those things because theology, by definition, it's the study of God. And so just as knowing more about Emily's life, her character, her personality, her past experiences, her present desires, her future dreams, just as these things are necessary for me to know about her so that I, so that I can grow in closer intimacy with her, so too we must grow intellectually in our knowledge of God. And the knowledge of his nature and the knowledge of his character and the knowledge of his mighty works and wonderful deeds. It is good and it is right and it is necessary for us to study theology that derives from scripture. But listen, our study about God should push us onward to know him, to know his person, to worship him and to fellowship with him. Please don't mishear me. If we don't study God as he is revealed in scripture, then we will worship a God that is fashioned in our own likeness. And you see this happening today, particularly within the progressive Christianity movement. A person's knowledge of God that is not derived from Holy Scripture, it's a false knowledge of God. But at the same time, a knowledge of God that is only derived from an intellectual study of Scripture That's an incomplete knowledge of God. We are called to know God, yes, intellectually with our minds. But we are also called to know God personally, relationally, and experientially. Because we serve a living God. And so that's why we pray that the Father of glory may give us the spirit of wisdom, true wisdom, wisdom that comes from above And and give us the spirit of revelation. Not that we may receive new revelations about God. All the revelation of God that we need is contained in God's word. But that we would be given new sight into the truths of God's word. That we may know God. I I don't know if I've shared this quote before with you. But but if I have, it it bears repeating. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he said this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set our lives, ourselves in life to know God? What is eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? It's knowledge of God. Everything in the Christian life, it flows from this one thing, a true knowledge of God. So church, may we endeavor to go beyond an outer court knowledge of God. May we leave behind the masses who are content with a superficial knowledge of God. And may we press in by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to enter into that most holy place. To truly know our God and to meet with him in his splendor, in his beauty, in his glory. May it be said that our highest prayer and our greatest aspiration as a church is this, that I may know him. A a couple days ago in our Bible reading plan and and shameless plug, if you haven't yet joined the two-year Bible reading plan that we're doing, if you you have a Bible plan already, then that's great. But if not, I encourage you to let this be day one and join us. Join us as we read through the Bible together together. In two years, and, and, and there are uh, uh, handouts back there that give the Bible reading schedule on there. But a couple days ago in our Bible reading plan, we read about Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. 
And while Mary desired just to sit at the feet of Jesus, Martha, what? She busied herself with many acts of service for Jesus, right? A well-familiar story. And so while Martha tries to get Jesus to admonish her, her seemingly lazy sister, how does Jesus reply back to Martha? He said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which shall not be taken away from her. Listen, we can know many things about Christ. We can busy ourselves even in service to Christ. And those can be very good things. But here in our text this morning, Paul is calling us to seek that greater portion, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to stay unhurried and unbusied in his presence and to grow in a true intellectual, personal, relational, vibrant, experiential knowledge of Christ. So I pray even now, Father, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation that we may grow in the knowledge of you. So we know what to pray. First, that we are to pray to know our God. And then secondly, Paul tells us that we are to pray that we may know our inheritance. We spoke at greater length last week regarding our future hope about what awaits us in heaven. So I will be brief on this point this morning, but I want to ask you this question. Where do your hopes, where do your affections, where do your desires lie? In something on this earth or in heaven? Do you search for hope in this lifetime by looking inward or outward? Or do you look upward? Listen, it's okay to, pos- to possess the things of this earth. It can be okay to possess the things of this earth. So the primary question isn't what do you possess, but rather what are you possessed by? Are you possessed by a desire for more possessions? Are you possessed by a desire for success? Are you possessed by a desire for financial security? Maybe if you're on a fixed income. Are you, are you possessed by a desire to raise role model type Children, are you possessed by a desire for relational fulfillment in your life? Listen, these things, they're not bad in and of themselves. But I ask you again, where does your hope lie? What governs your thought life and your emotional life when life doesn't go right? Where does your hope lie? In Luke chapter 12, again, our Bible reading for today and so, so join us today and you can read this passage. But in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he, could, he, so he says, because of that, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there will your heart be also. And so in this passage, is Jesus calling us to a life of greater generosity? I think he is. That's part of it. But even more, Jesus is pressing this point to us. That we are to set our hopes on and that we are to live for what will last for all eternity. And so I want to ask again, where does your hope lie in this lifetime? Paul prayed that we would live for what will last that we would know and that we would set our hopes on what are the riches of his glorious 
inheritance in the saints. Listen, brothers and sisters, there's coming a day when we will reign with Christ on this earth. And Jesus said there's coming a day when the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So again, brothers and sisters, live for what will last for all eternity. Set your hope in heaven. Finally, Paul encourages that we would pray to know God's present power. So our, our sun, it's an incomprehensibly powerful star. I'll give you a quick fact uh, that I'll nerd out on. But every second, the sun produces around 38,460 septillion watts. I mean, that's a lot of power, isn't it? That's 3.86 times 10 to the 26th power number of watts per second. So, so to put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of 1.82 billion Tsar Bombas, bomb, bombs, uh, it's a Russian word, okay, it's a Russian, but it's the most powerful thermonuclear bomb ever built. So picture 1.82 billion of those going off together at the same time, and that happens every single second within our sun. And if that weren't enough, our sun is just a measly average star among the 100 billion in our galaxy, and our galaxy is of the estimated over 100 billion in our known universe and to think our god just spoke all of this into existence and by the word of his power right now christ is sustaining these billions of stars contained in these billions of galaxies in the known universe and so when paul prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe i think we need an enlarged understanding of what god's omnipotence means because paul would write this in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 he said this god that god who said let light shine out of darkness think the energy of the sun let god who said let light shine out of darkness he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of Jesus Christ. So did you see that connection there that Paul made? The world that was created, the world that he empowers and the world that he sustains and the universe that he sustains, it by his word, it's the very same word with the very same power that has created the new life within us. Oh, that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In the Bible, the only direct mention of the power of God outside the Lord Jesus himself, it's in reference to the gospel. Romans 1 verse 16, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel for what? It is the power of God for everyone who believes. This same universe-creating, star-sustaining power of God has been given to us in the gospel. And we see that in our text this morning. See in verse 20, that the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And Paul said this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he continues to talk about what Christ is doing and what he will do at a future date. And so listen, this is why it is my desire that we would be a gospel-centered 
church. That's why on Wednesday evenings we are studying what the gospel means and how the gospel applies to every aspect of our lives. That we would be a church that is shaped by the gospel, a church whose minds are saturated with the gospel, and a church who lives in the power of the gospel. Because the gospel, it is the very power of God. And so listen, growth in the Christian life, it won't come through your willpower, it won't come through your discipline, and it won't come through your morality. It's important to have a renewed will, a renewed discipline, and a godly morality. But that's not where the power lies. The power doesn't lie within you. The power of God, it's found in the gospel. And so there is soul raising, there is sin killing, there is affection creating, and there is Christ proclaiming power found in the gospel made available to you. And so to live a life not centered upon and not empowered the gospel, it's like a person who is living homeless and who is begging on the street while there's a million dollars waiting for them in their bank account. Listen, brothers and sisters, avail yourselves to the power that has been given to us in the gospel. Do, do you struggle with besetting recurring habitual sins in your life? Then lay hold of the cleansing blood of Christ that is able to rid you of all your past guilt. And that is able to break the power of canceled, to break you with the power of canceled sin. Are you fearful about things in your life or, or does even the, the idea of evangelism, does it scare you out of your mind? Well, then set your hope on what is yours now in Christ and what cannot be taken away from you. And then and yield yourself to the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it may be in your life, know this. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. Believe that. Pray that you would really believe that. And that you would live in light of that truth. We, we have seen the why of prayer. We, we, we pray because what's spiritually available to us must be spiritually obtained by us. We have seen the how of prayer. That, that we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. And we have seen the what of prayer. That we are to pray for a greater and true knowledge of God for a greater hope in our future inheritance, and for a greater experience of God's power within our lives. And so now we come to the application portion of our sermon. And what better application for us than to spend time in prayer? And so if you're physically able, and if you're willing, if you're not, that's okay on either of those accounts. But if you're physically able and willing, I want to encourage you maybe to kneel at your chair. And as you're doing so, um, I want you to set your mind on the truth of why we pray. Remember, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and to lead us in prayer. So right now, I want you to spend a little bit of time. Spend time confessing any known sin that has grieved the Holy Spirit. And confess your own insufficiency in prayer. Pray that in these next few minutes, you would be yielded to his leadership while you pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.